Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. Does it say it's recording your end? Have you got a wee red dot or something? Yes. Amazing. <laughs> oh, this is lovely. I'm so chuffed to be speaking to you on this fine Thursday morning. Yeah, 1st of October. It's it sure is. Nice to be in October. It's been a fast year. Yeah, well, that's what I was saying to somebody the other day. They're actually like, it feels like a fast year, but then in so many ways it feels like time is dragging and I'm sure we'll we'll get to all the reasons <laughs> why <laughs> yeah, that is. I mean, the, the pandemic does not escape any conversation but um, mm-hmm. I will say that yes on this fine Thursday 1st of October I am delighted to be speaking to award-winning designer Christopher McAvoy who is one half of Viver which is a woven textile studio in the heart of Glasgow's East End. Yeah. Did I nail that? Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's, that's, you've caught all the bases. <laughs> Great. I've done my, I've done my, uh, my elevator pitch. <laughs> I've not heard that, that word for years. Well, we've got lots of elevator pitches on the Bra and the Brave, but, um, but I'm, I'm definitely all about the detail and that's why I enjoyed in the podcast so much because just this long form discussion you just get into all sorts and actually we were getting into it then I, I was like to you let's start recording because we were to, <laughs> I like to always check with my guests um how to pronounce their name how to pronounce their their companies just to make sure that I'm nailing it and you were telling me that Viver well you were telling me the origins of the word because I was asking you how to pronounce it so give me all the good stuff Christopher right well I'll sort of start how how we sort of came to to call in the company Viva then because we're trying to find of something that was like modern but also really traditionally Scottish and me and Chantal are also quite into the idea of like Scandi Scott the sort of you know Scots being a Scandinavian race so we're also looking a bit into that and I was given this book years ago and I couldn't even tell you who gave it to me and it's the history of the Glasgow Weavers uh, the incorporation of Weavers of Glasgow and I was looking through it and it was some record from the 1500s and they had written down weaver as weaver so it's an old scots version of the word weaver and if you say weaver in a really sort of you know broad like ayrshire accent you know weaver you know you can sort of you can hear that as a weaver yes uh, totally. and then also after googling it we found out that it's also the swedish word for weaver vev ah, and weaver nice so one. it's so it's quite interesting to see that sort of Scottish link and it also just looks nice. If anything with, you know, V's in it always stands out. Yes, all about the aesthetics. Actually, I was totally thinking that when I was looking at your logo, I was like, yeah, that that's, I just love it. It, it just, it's, it's aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> but it's like a word that's sort of deeply rooted in Scots and weaving and stuff, which we quite like that mm. is such a modern look but is sort of deeply traditional which is what we are obviously trying to do as weavers a lot of the time yeah and I, and you you obviously you mentioned Chantal Allen there um and I, you know I did say that you were one half of Weaver um and before we get into Viva and why you decided to, to start the company, I'm, I'm interested um, in your own personal journey in terms of your background in art and design and making. And I was reading a blog post on your website and your family has like a real history of, of weaving. 
Yeah, uh, that sort of uh, it's sort of mental. Uh, growing up, I knew that my great granny was a weaver. Uh, we have little bits of cloth that she'd wove in the house. It's just been something that was on the back of my mind. And then I went to go study textiles at GSA without even thinking about that. Uh, I was determined to be a printer because of reasons. Fell in love with weaving, became a weaver. And my mum was like, oh, your granny did this. Or her granny, my great granny did this and showed me her bits. And then when my mum retired, she started doing more of the family history. And then we found out that, yeah, my family's been weaving, dyeing, finishing, all aspects of the textile industry going back to like the 1850s is as far back as we've got, uh, even further than that, obviously with like the ages of the people in the records, but we've just been at it for that long, so it must be in the blood. Yeah, it's totally in your DNA, Uh Mm uh-huh. That's so funny, yeah, you couldn't escape it. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's one of those sort of things like, I think there is a lot of thing about, you know, families have like a sort of a genetic memory. It's like muscle memory that's passed down, like people being afraid of snakes from birth. Like you just sort of know things. And I think my family just knows how to weave. That's amazing. And like, you know, it's so, so important to keep these traditional crafts alive. It absolutely is. You know, I'm very passionate about the traditions of Scotland. Obviously, Scottish dance coming from an arts background and a dance background. Um, and I just love to see people keeping these these traditional art forms and crafts alive. I think it's so important. And it, they are just, whether it's intentional or not, like you say, they are just passed down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it, yeah, no, keeping craft alive and then also just like showing, especially the breadth of like Scottish craft and just like making and just like our culture, you know, I think a lot of the time, people think that we are just you know tartan shortbread and you know reels Mm. but we're so much more than that and a lot of my practice has always been based around sort of identifying these little things that we seem to just forget as a culture for some I, I can't even tell you a reason but we'll never you know seem to concentrate on these few things that we seem to think make us us when we're so much more than that and luckily growing up in a family that has these little artifacts and things that were passed down I could see what we were doing a hundred years ago and how amazing it was yeah. and then sort of like look at well why aren't we doing that now and that's really a big basis of like being my practice as a weaver and a designer and then going forward is going to be the basis of basically everything I intend to do. So when you were studying did you have quite a clear idea of what you were going to do once you'd left your studies and moved into the world of being, I guess, self-employed or going to work for a, a design house or did you know what you wanted to do? Uh, yeah, yes and no. Like, obviously things change. To give you, like, the long version of it, when I was 14, we were doing, we got this new art teacher in high school, uh, Miss Campbell, uh, who's fantastic, and she decided to do a textiles project with us as part of our standard grade and it was printed textiles based on the work of William Morris and Timnus Beasties who are a Glasgow based design firm and so I was writing my little standard grade design essay on Timnus Beasties and it was like went to Glasgow School of Art went to the Royal College of Art came back to Glasgow started a design studio and at 14 I said okay and that's what I kind of did obviously 
I didn't become a printer, which was my main focus all through high school, applying to art school. I sort of found and fell in love with Weave, but that blueprint at 14 of go to Glasgow, go to the Royal College, come back, which I actually found out was a blueprint that was laid down during the Great Exhibition. Like They decided to build these art schools around the country to then feed into this one art school down in London to then go back out and I just sort of followed that plan. Right, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's sort of mad, but yeah, at 14 I made the decision and I'm very sort of, when I, when I put my mind to it, it happens. To have that clear idea of what you loved and what you wanted to do, like um, I'm always impressed that someone is able to have that vision so young. You know, my mum's always been really good of encouraging me and my brother growing up to just sort of follow our passions and stuff and mm. and it's just I just always loved art and design and there's also that little thing in the back of your head like okay I would have loved to have been a painter or a sculptor but when you're 14 and you're you know living in a council estate in the north of Glasgow and going to a school where you know you know saying you want to go to art school isn't necessarily the most like celebrated thing Got you. Uh, design seems like a more you know, reasonable choice as opposed to the fine arts yeah. because, you know, you'll get a job. Uh, so I had that in the back of my head when I made the decision, but also I just really wanted to pursue something that made me happy. And that's the thing about having people in your life like that teacher, Miss Campbell, and like your mum saying, absolutely, you can do this. That, you know, you just need one or two people in your corner regardless of your circumstances or what everybody else around you is doing to just go yeah I can do that and and go and pursue it especially at a young age yeah I mean the minute I sort of went into that and said I want to do this a lot of sort of things fell into place uh the God School of Art has a really amazing widening participations program uh, so the school I went to was a low attainment school uh low progression into higher education uh, I actually found out afterwards I was the first person in 15 years to have got into the art school for an art design course wow. when it happened uh, but the art school itself sent out you know students to do talks work with students who are in similar backgrounds to me you know obviously single parent family council estate council house in Glasgow mm-hmm. you know chances of me going to art school were not the best uh, having you know three periods of art a week not the best mm. uh, but you know there was such a massive support system in Glasgow you know as a whole to get people from my background into the arts Absolutely. and yeah I think it's just fantastic I don't think enough people realize how much support and help is out there for them because the arts are really when you're not part of it they just feel they feel like something that doesn't belong to you, yeah. which is the furthest from the truth. But no, it's something that's really dear to my heart is like helping people into the arts. And because of just the sheer help I got, like I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't have won the awards or been, you know, traveling and doing all the stuff that I get to do if it wasn't for people like Miss Campbell, like my mum, like you said, but then also just the amazing teams of people who work with young people in Glasgow. Mm. I think you're right, like that idea of you can quite often take it for granted when you have been immersed in the arts from like a young age and you have had that support 
to not recognise or not really understand that some people are feel totally excluded or are totally excluded from participating in the arts. And I think more so than, than ever, like you say, there are so many supportive organisations and charities and individuals that are working to make sure that there are less and less barriers for people of any background um, to, to to get involved in whatever art form or whatever craft that they so choose. But yeah, there probably are still people that feel even within themselves that I, I love that, but you know, but I can't do that. You know, I can't go and do dance or I can't go and become a designer. That that's that's for other people. So yeah, uh, you were saying in a message to me that you are now actually involved in an intern program. Yeah, so I I do I offer internships to kids specifically from sort of you know low attainment backgrounds uh, where they can sort of engage with like the weaving students who have came through that widening participation widening access route into the art school who then find themselves because the thing is even when you're part of it you can feel like you're not part of it so what often happens is some students might have sort of a crisis at the end of first year the end of second year about I really don't belong here so giving them a chance to go into a professional working environment and just be part of it Mm. in like a very realistic way not only does it sort of like it's a boost in confidence but you know it gives them something that a lot of other students in the class won't have you know the ones who have been brought up in an environment where they can you know do this do that and that you know maybe their parents are in a financial position to help them do an internship and an internship there of course but you know you can't travel far from Glasgow if you can't get there on the bus you can't do it and then to be in an environment a professional environment like my studio like in the Vivar studio and I'll throw them in at the deep end because the thing is if you're good enough to have an idea then you're good enough to be a designer mm. uh, and I just have them do the work that any graduate would do and yeah I've seen it work with a lot of young adults that yeah you can see the confidence boost in them over the course of a summer you know working on things doing things uh, I've even like if they do a design they do a woven design I'll take it to trade shows and I'll sell it on for them and they'll get kicked back from that they'll get their money they'll get a commission from the design that. sale which is a lot of thing that you know people under 20 can't say they've done yeah that's that's phenomenal Chris I really admire that that's brilliant because the world needs more people like yourself who are you know like you're saying you recognize the background that you came from and the support that you had and you're just absolutely paying that forward and that needs to happen more especially in in times that we're, we're living in you know at the moment in the arts how much we're suffering we all need to band together and support each other there's room for everybody mm-hmm. there really is so, like, like leaving university, and did you have like a clear path then, or a clear idea of what you were going to do next? Well, when I left GSA, I decided I wanted when I was on my undergraduate, decided I wanted to do a master's degree and to get out of Glasgow for a little while and just see somewhere else and sort of expand my horizons. Mm. So I went down to London for two years, studied at the RCA, worked, lived, did all that. Uh, as I was coming to the end of that I was sort of saying I really want to come back to Glasgow over that time I was really interested in this idea of reshoring of like bringing manufacturing back there'd been a few mills down south that were bringing manufacturing of like spun cottons and uh, woolen worsteds back into the UK and creating jobs locally but in a more sort of micro manufacturing sort of dynamic way 
and it was like, well, this is something that we should be doing in Glasgow. You know, Glasgow's this amazing city, has an amazing legacy and heritage. Why aren't we manufacturing here again? Why aren't we leading this textiles, you know, future? So I decided to come back and start my studio with the idea that that would become a mill, uh, which it has done now. Uh, and yeah, sort of part of that was, again, would very lucky to have... I applied for and won the Deutsche Bank Award for Creative Enterprise when I was during my master's and they gave me a year's business advice and also £10,000 to move back up to Glasgow and start this business. Amazing. Which was, it's an amazing boost. It was a competition sort of like across the UK. I got shortlisted, did a sort of a Dragon's Den pitch to investment bankers and industry people. Uh, It was amazing to have got it. I was you know, I was up against a lot of like really amazing ideas, but the fact that I was able to take that money, bring it back to Glasgow and invest it in Glasgow was crucial mm. and so important. You know, it's amazing having an idea and a plan, but again, without capital, you can't do it. And there's very little sort of like seed funding capital for people who want to pursue an idea like that, yeah, just in yeah, general. Of course, yeah. So yeah, that's how I sort of came back to Glasgow Bought my first couple of looms, started, you know, paid for my website, started making for myself. I'd made a lot of contacts in London with the sort of a luxury fashion market who have sort of been my bread and butter for the past okay. four years. What What's that world like? You know what? It is so Scottish. Right. It's everybody who's head of a design team seems to be Scottish. No uh, way. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's... I'll be down in London for the week and I'll go to my meetings in the morning and I'll just go into these sort of impeccably white buildings full of like fresh flowers and, you know, the reception staff speaking French exclusively for some reason. Wow. Uh, and then you go up the elevator and it's like five Scots around the table looking at <laughs> fabric. Love it. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's brilliant. Uh, so you end up just having cups of tea, natters. Yeah, uh, and they always just you know talk about how they miss a plain loaf and <laughs> uh, <A> square sausage. Ah, <laughs> uh, exactly. So yeah, and then is there, is there any new restaurants opening up in Glasgow? We're coming up at Christmas. And, Jesus, that's so funny. Yeah. I mean, not that I'm surprised that us Scots, you know, are a talented bunch, but that's that's lovely to hear. Yeah, no, we we get everywhere. We're like a bad rash. Uh, <laughs> so true. So true. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's it's, it's great. Like, and it. You think it again? You would think it'd be like this sort of ultra glamorous world, like the devil wears Prada, but it's a lot more friendly than that. Well, that's nice to hear, but I guess that's because there's lots of Scots involved. We're just yeah. a friendly bunch, to be fair. I mean, to be honest, like I could be coming in with a skewed, a skewed view of this because I'm coming into a room full of Scots with, you know, a bag of tablet. Whereas <laughs> if you were someone, someone else, you might have a totally different reception. But. Uh, no, it's it's not as a scary world as people think, and people are just generally want to do well. And the thing is, you know, big fashion brands have big teams. They can't afford to be mean or rude because you know HR and suing and. Of course, and your designs. What have then they been created into? Well, they they, oh, they turn into all sorts of things. That's uh, so. I sell concepts. So I'll only ever go in and give them an A four bit of fabric that I've came up with and then sometimes will come back to me and ask oh how did you do that and I'll send them the technical information 
But what that then goes on and becomes is I have no idea a lot of the time. I've right. seen things that I've looked at and I've like, oh yeah, that's my fabric because I've sent my fabric out to Italy to be woven and then it'll come back and it'll be a dress and I've I have seen a few bits and bobs like on the high street as well so it's like filtered down but then other times it'll be like a knitted jumper that is the same colour stripe as the woven fabric I've given them because they, they, they buy them really as inspiration rather than necessarily for a straight development into a fabric got you Right, okay, that's fascinating. See, this is just like totally alien to me, this world. It's, this it's is... alien to me as well a lot of the time. Uh, trying to tell someone that like, oh, you're a weaver or what do you make? I, well, I make ideas and sell them. I love Everybody that. wants me to make them scarves. Uh... <laughs> I bet. That, that is fascinating because that's just like, if you don't know anything about that world, like that you just wouldn't know that that's exactly how it works for, for someone like yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember... When I was at uni, people thinking that they had to do every single little aspect of design when they graduated, so that you know they would have to design the fabric, design the clothes, sew the clothes, make the fabric, you know, all mm. of this. But that's not really how it works, you know. You you sort of specialize in one area. So I, yeah, I I make designs for fabric, but then I'll sell that to a company who then take it to their design team who then, you know, design a jumper and they just put it with that fabric and then that goes to a manufacturer who works out how to manufacture it and then you, you sort of become these little specialised pods of knowledge. Mm. Whether it be, you know, music or whether it be a tangible item, it's it's essentially handing over, like, your baby. I guess you then have to relinquish that control element. You know, you're handing this over and you, you actually, like you're saying, you don't know what they're going to do with it necessarily. Well, that's the thing. When I give them that piece of work, they're buying the idea, they're buying that sort of intellectual property of it. It doesn't belong to me in any way, shape or form anymore. But, you know, when I first graduated and I was selling little bits and bobs of work I'd done at uni, that was work that was sort of deeply personal. And well, all work's deeply personal, but things that I'd sort of spent, you know, a year crafting mm. to get a degree. Uh, and it was a bit harder. But, you know, now it's it's... I don't even think about it because if I didn't sell it, I wouldn't eat. You know, I'm making work specifically to sell on to people. So there is an attachment there in that everything I make is sort of an extension of like, you know, my interest, my research, uh, this sort of idea of, you know, modern Scottishness, which is like a massive aspect of of my practice and, you know, why people buy work off me. I've had buyers say, oh, we love your work because it's like sort of really modern and really Scottish, uh, but at the end of the day, I'm making you know five or six designs a week. I'm not spending six months crafting it yeah. the way I used to. Yeah, it's just a different process. Yeah, it's almost like you know baking cupcakes. You know, you might want one for yourself, but the other eleven can be sold at the bake sale. I like that analogy. And what are you inspired by, and what is your creative process for those particular designs? So. I'm always like inspired by like Scottishness, but then I I love the sort of sense of nostalgia and family, and that's why I always go back to more. So like I said, I have all these little sort of like bits of textiles that have sort of been passed down through the family that I sort of like look to for inspiration mm. and like old family photos. So my my great granny, the the weaver, there'll be a, if you were looking at the blog post, you'd have seen a photo of her. That said, my family were in love with photographing themselves I think they just loved it so we have all these photos 
I think the oldest one is that's one of the oldest there, and it's sort of nineteen thirteen, roughly. So you can see all the sort of because they were getting dressed up. It was an occasion uh-huh. to get a photograph, so you can see some of the outfits they're wearing and the lace and the frills and stuff, and then. A family of hoarders, you know, there's just bits and bobs Love everywhere. That. How important that is, though, to keep those things. Like, that's such a gift that your family were photographing themselves so much. Like, it's almost mm-hmm. like they knew that they were leaving this for you to then pick up <laughs> and be inspired by. Yeah, and, like, it's not just the photographs. Like I said, uh, there's actual physical objects we have. I, you know, I haven't seen them actually in ages. I'll need to ask my mum where they are. Uh, we have little crochet lace collars, you know, to oh. put over dresses and things you know things that my great grandparents you know made and made for each other we have uh, a lovely my great granda got uh, injured during the first world war and he made one of those satin heart pin cushions so we have that Uh, you know just these little little objects of fabric and textiles that have really sort of went on to inspire me because I think you know family and family relationships and nostalgia really inspire what I do so a lot of the stuff I do is you know it's it's ripped and it's shredded and it's these sort of you know broken Mm. textures and things but they're made out of like silks and things it's sort of a a notion of sort of like preciousness and these sort of like when you open you know a box and you pull out an old christening gown or something that belonged to your mum you know I'm trying to capture that in my work so that's a lot of what I focus on when I'm making you just totally transported me into my mum's sewing box because my mum used to make like pram sets and stuff when we were younger and it was that well I guess that would have been like the 80s so it was all like you know the like heavy satin like loads of frills and Mm -hmm. she had those little pin cushions that and she'd obviously made them and they had like you know a wee delicate like pink or blue boar whatever it and I'd genuinely forgotten about that and the minute you mentioned that I was like I was totally there I can see her sewing box I mean she's still got it I'm sure I'm pretty sure she's not thrown it out but thinking back these are so precious to keep and you know yeah it it pays off being being a bit of a hoarder I guess (laughs) yeah I mean like a big part of it I I suppose when you're talking about going through your mum's sewing box that I hadn't really thought about was a Growing up, my grandparents were both quite unwell, so we spent a lot of time with them. And they, at the end of their lives, they you know they lived with us. But when they passed away, and sort of going through their possessions, you know, to sort of clear out and you know make good of things, you know, you find these little objects, and you know that sort of the feeling you got there, that little sort of spark of nostalgia, it's sort of like that sort of it's sort of a really intangible thing. Yeah, that's always what I'm trying to sort of have in my work. You know, trying to recreate that. That's lovely. I, I love that. I love everything about that. That's amazing. So then you're creating your designs and you're selling your designs and then you have an idea to start Viva. Where did that come from? Well, like I said, I, I, I was really interested in micro-manufacturing, reshoring, you know, making things in the heart of the city, preserving this sort of craft heritage. And it's something I'd sort of spoke about a lot but you know it's finding the equipment finding the right space for it you know that's the machinery is you know it's like the loom we have currently it's you know it's three tons my goodness yeah it's not it's not it's not something you can do in your back room no (laughs) Uh, so the way viva sort of came about was oddly enough because of the mac fire uh the second one yes what happened was some one of the master's students Chloe had been displaced 
so she couldn't finish her master's degree collection. So the art school contacted me because I had my studio. I had at this point I was operating four or five handlooms at the same time, just for like design and commission work. And they'd asked if they could bring Chloe down. So she was down working, and during that time, my old technician, when I was a student, uh, Chantal was down. So we, me and Chantal sort of reconnected, uh, you know, talking about things, all of that. And round about that same time, this power loom had came up for sale. And so we were sort of like talking about it, discussing it. And I was like, oh, you know what? I don't have space for this right now. I don't have the headspace. It, I was just, it came up for sale just before I was I was going to Paris for a couple of weeks to do work. So I was just, I just don't have the headspace for this right now. I'll, I'll just let it go. And then came back. This is the thing you think. You, you never meet a weaver and then you find out there's like tons of us and we all hang out together. Right. We were at this other weaver's 30th, uh, Heather Shields, who's a fantastic weaver. Uh, she she weaves all this beautiful homewares out in Gurukh. Uh, we were at her 30th birthday in the 13th note and me and Chantal were outside having a, a, sneaky, a sneaky cigarette and Chantal went, oh Christopher, I've done something really stupid. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, I bought that free ton loom, it's in my garage. <laughs> so that's how that started. And then we sort of started discussing our studio. So obviously I was running at this time, McAvoy Textiles, and we you know, sell designs to the luxury market. Chantal has her own little brand, uh, Warp Textiles, and she makes cushions and blankets and stuff. It's, a, it's sort of a heritage craft sector mm. sort of products. Uh, sells a lot to like, tourists. She sells a lot in shops up and down the sort of west coast of Scotland on the islands and then we're just discussing it and discussing said well let's do something that is a combination of both let's come together I can use my design sales and commission expertise she knows her products you know she taught me how to weave so she's she is really the man when it comes to weaving so we decided to join forces get this power loom set up somewhere and start a new company and that it took us a year from that discussion outside the pub to moving into our premises in February of this year and then it even took us even further than that I think we only got the loom actually plugged into the free phase in like June obviously pandemic was in the full flow then so it took us a while to figure that out but that's kind of how it all came about it was just Chantal bought a three ton Chantal bought a three ton loom (laughs) had it in our garage Amazing, and that that that's lovely that you've been able to then shift into that realm and, and explore something new. I guess. Yeah, like uh, powerloom weaving is a thing that I've sort of came across in very small drips or drabs, but I've never been, you know, running a powerloom because generally I'm telling someone what I want them to be doing and then walking away. Uh, so mm. designer privilege, uh, but you know, we're sort of figuring it out together. And then obviously Viva were also going to be selling sort of like products as a way of just sort of, you know, keeping the lights on and, you know, just sort Mm. of like highlighting what we can do to different people and sort of hopefully using it as a way of exhibiting, you know, different designers' work. And so I've never done products before and Chantal's really sort of bringing that on board. Well, that's the thing. I was just thinking that like that combination, like obviously you you knew each other and you, you respect each other's work and you've went into your own worlds. But it's lovely to, to, to come back together to have that collaboration because quite often when you are an artist out there doing your thing, it can be quite a lonely existence and you're just kind of, you've only got your own ideas to, to work with. So it, working with someone else 
it just opens up a whole other prospect of of ideas and, and different things that you could work on together yeah exactly uh yeah when you're you know in a studio by yourself it's quite lonely mm. it becomes really difficult even just yeah bouncing ideas it's such an important thing you go from you know studying and being in a studio environment where there's tons of people to then being by yourself with your machinery uh, and i will say this sort of past year being in the studio has been amazing uh just trying these new things getting ideas working together working as a team again yeah. is is brilliant it's it's been it's probably been the best you know what i'll say it's been the best year for my practice since graduating it's also been the first year where i've like sold no work because the pandemic's running and yes. i can't be you know going abroad for meetings every other month but yeah. it's, it's it's been one of the best sort of creatively it's been so refreshing you know obviously this year is a difficult year for everyone but it's really for me been a great chance to just stop reset rethink and you know go into a way of making that has been so beneficial mm. just to have time to talk to someone and have that sort of similar goal yeah because i think there's been like so many people have obviously started something as a response to the pandemic Viva wasn't that you'd already you'd already been working on that but you know starting Viva this year just before the pandemic really hurt us all yeah it's still been that it sounds like it's still been that opportunity you've embraced it it's like well you know we've got this time and yeah we, we can't travel and we can't necessarily work how we would normally so we might as well embrace it and make this and, and use the time to be creative and dream up ideas and with the hope that when the world starts spinning we can we can start making again we can start creating yeah we'll be hitting the ground running uh you know we'd probably have been doing viva around our own individual practices obviously Chantal still works at the art school whereas we've both been able to do this full time for the past you know five mm. six months which has been invaluable uh we're just really you know touch wood we've been so lucky that we got into the space at the right time which you know it qualified us to get the covid grant from the council which was amazing that that really supported us if it wasn't for that and the help with that you know we would have been dead Mm. in the water but no we we were really fortunate which is you know it's a shame not everyone has had of course the same chance with that that's encouraging to hear that you guys have had that support that you've been able to continue and make the best out of what's been like a really difficult situation so what is the what is the the dream for viva what is the plan what would you like to be doing when things are more more normal will we say more normal uh well things have already started moving so ideally we would like viva to be a commission weavers primarily so weaving things for other people so kind of an extension of my practice in a way so I sell designs then those designs are taken away to mills that can manufacture it and mainly the mills that people take unusual designs to are the European mills uh, in France and Italy uh, because the British mills have a sort of a reputation for being a bit you know male pale and stale Got you. so if we can plug that little market of doing crazy and unusual things for people that would be great uh, the other side of that, obviously, is we're doing a little product and lifestyle thing, just just as a way of you know keeping the loom running and sort of 
you know, letting people engage with us, like sort of the public engage with us in some way. But I would love to see that expand to mainly being, you know, collaborations, you know, working with artists and organisations to create bespoke things that are then sold, you know, maybe it's, you know, a, a Vivar, Grace and Perry collaboration or something, yeah. you know what I mean? Something something exciting like that. But then also, you know, just working with Scottish artists, arts institutions, you know, maybe providing sponsorship for maybe an arts charity to like get their clients, you know, weaving and like understanding the process. Mm-hmm. We wanted to be so many things, but the big thing is like commission weaving. So doing crazy weaves for other people, but in a way that's accessible. So like smaller designers can access us. And then the other half is just like sort of demystifying the industry a lot because you say weave to people and they, you know, they, they go a bit cloudy eyed. They just don't know what, what, what that is or what it yeah. entails. Well, I, I admit it's something that's totally alien to me. So this is like an absolute education. That's the thing. Like a lot of people, they, well, lots of people never meet a weaver in their life. And then lots of designers will send an email to a mill asking for advice on something and they'll just get like a very opaque answer back, which is, you know, full of all the jargon. Right. So we were kind of wanting to sort of like ease that transition of, you know, the small designer with the small idea, the artist with an idea, a little bridge between the the designer maker yeah. and the big factories, you know, something sort of plug that wee gap. Because they, that could be very much like where someone's idea stops when they feel like it's out of their depth or they feel like they're out of their depth or it's, you know, it's going back to that idea, you know, you're saying about being at school and not in wanting to be a designer you know wanting to be involved in the arts in some way shape or form and that being totally alien like that not being the normal language so well that's not for me then so yeah just like you're saying demystifying allowing someone to bring their idea to fruition um yeah I think that's that's important that just yeah more people are invited into the space yeah well that's the thing we want it to be a sort of a space that people can come to and have a part in the making and also just like that sort of traditional manufacturing, because of the way it runs, uh, they need to have their minimums. And generally, most mills' minimums will be in excess of 50 metres, plus yarn cost, plus weaving cost. So you're talking about you have to invest in having 50 metres of fabric woven. And with that, like, you know, maybe the, the actual production cost for 50 metres of fabric might be on the lower end, two and a half thousand, three thousand pounds. But that's not including all the material costs. And then you've got carton weights that are minimum orders. So, you you know, easily that 50 metres of fabric can balloon to like seven grand to buy. Oh my goodness, right. And then, you know, you need to get that capital to put into production. And then what if it doesn't sell? You've got 50 metres of bump. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to make myself a set of curtains. <laughs> a long pair of curtains. <laughs> Gosh, that's, yeah. That is going to put somebody off if they don't have the backing, financial backing. Yeah, it's it's why you don't see a lot of new little weave companies launch. Of course, like, it's, you have to do it by hand. It's hand weaving, or you go into manufacturing. If you don't have the capital to be manufacturing, you can't mm. go for it. And if you're hand weaving, you know it's so time and labour. It's time expensive, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it would, it would make your product whatever you're making so prohibitively expensive like you see people selling woven scarves for like like hand woven scarves for like 45 50 pounds and when you calculate it out just from a business point they're paying themselves like 40 pence an hour to do that 
you know, it's 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 And then it's somebody goes, fifty pound for a scarf and you're like, Aye Or <laughs> Oh yeah, like when your auntie asks you to make something and they're like, Oh, we'll pay you for it and you're like, Honest to God, I could half I could pay myself less than minimum wage and it would still be too much. Yeah, I can imagine. It needs to be valued. Yeah. I think times are changing, but in general a lot of people just don't see the value of craft making, you know, knitting, weaving, crochet, because they're so far removed from it. You know, growing up with knitters, like my mum's a knitter as well, uh, you understand how much time goes into something. It's amazing. Like, I can't imagine being able to knit anything. Yeah, but there's so people who just don't know it, and they know they can go into, you know, a high street shop and buy a jumper for eight quid. So why can't you knit it for eight quid? And that idea of like fast fashion and sustainability, obviously it's like a hot topic just now, quite rightly so. What are your thoughts and feelings about that and in terms of like your work in Viva and what you want it to be? It's it's difficult because it comes from two angles. Yeah, fast fashion is is bad. It, it exploits the planet and it exploits, you know, people, you know, like these Bangladeshi garment workers. It's it's terrible. It is terrible, but also, you know, I, okay, I'll save up a bit of money and I'll go and spend it on some nice clothing or whatever. When I was growing up, my mum didn't have loads of money to spend to clothe herself, me and my brother. So to, you know, to turn around and say to someone in that position, well, you know, that you're actually destroying the planet and exploiting women in, in Asia eh, because you're trying to just clothe your children on what little money you have is... It's also difficult. You can't, yeah. you know, there's there's no totally. win. I've had this conversation. Um, Jill from Law Design Studio was on the podcast last year and we spoke about that very thing. You know, she was saying about some people just can't afford to shop elsewhere other than like the likes of Primark or whatever to close their, their kids. It's just maybe necessarily not buying something and just wearing it once. Yeah. It's, it's to buying something and wearing it once is a problem but then again a lot of these clothes you know you buy them you wash them and you can only wear it once uh, I think and it's 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 sort of a vicious cycle as well I remember I can't remember someone was telling me about it was an analogy about poverty about you know there's two pairs of boots one is £80 one is £20 someone who can afford £80 boots those £80 boots will last 10 years but the £20 boots can only last one year so by the time the person who had the capital to start and spent £80 on that first pair of boots, by the time they run out, they've only spent £80 on those boots after 10 years. But the one, the £20 pair of boots, that was all you can afford in that moment. By the time that 10 years is up, you're going to spend £200, twice as much. And there's just so many people in this country and all over the world who just don't have the money to invest in mm. something that isn't fast fashion. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of, sad and it's upsetting but it's really like asking about how I feel about it I just don't think there's a right or a wrong way of going about it you know we can you know rip up fast fashion but then everything's going to become so expensive that there'll be people who can't afford to engage with that yeah I guess it's just maybe about educating people about where their clothes come from and just like if you have the option to to stop and think about a purchase before you make it and in terms of you know whether it's whether it's a sustainable option or you know do I really need this then yeah I, I guess education is, is is key but like you're saying it's difficult when you're talking about people's budget and what they can afford to spend because I know like the stuff that 
that I make and sort of the, the clients that I just work for, you know, they, they, they make dresses that are, you know, thousands of pounds. So it's never, fast fashion is not really something that's ever really comes into my practice a lot of the time because yeah. it's mm-hmm. the, st- the stuff I I work with is so far removed. And then again, with that, like, I used to be very sort of engaged with like notions of sustainability and I still make work with sustainability in mind, you know, but I can't, you know, I need to sort of think about the life cycle of the fabric. It's the only way I feel I can ethically make is if I think about how will this decay in the ground. Uh, but then a lot of the fashion industry, they want fancy yarns. Uh, so, you know, things that are spun out of uh, latex or, you know, different sort of polyesters. So the only sort of remedy for that is the fact that, okay, I might be designing with those yarns, but the people who will be buying the, the outfit at the end of it will be made out of those yarns. will be spending so much money that it won't be something that ends up in landfill. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. It's definitely one we, we can't solve today, Christopher. Oh, yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's, it's such a, a complex issue and mm. people see it in a very black and white way, but it's 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 so, so complex and so difficult. So you were saying like it has been a really productive time, even though that we've been on lockdown and the pandemic continues and things are difficult. Um, what is happening right now for, for yourself and Viva and what are you looking forward to? We are going to be launching our first sort of collection and shop on the website on the 16th. <gasps> exciting. It is exciting. Uh It'd be a lot more exciting if everything was made uh, and ready to go. Uh, but we just signed off on some samples yesterday. Okay. So we're quite lucky that there's actually a, a soft furnishings manufacturer next to us. So the carbon footprint of our cushions will be the walk across our car park. Oh my goodness, uh, amazing. Which is great. <laughs> so brilliant. Uh, so yeah, we're, we've just signed off on those samples. So we're putting them into production. Uh, got scarves and all that they're all good to go just really excited it's, it's been really good we decided sort of over lockdown like we'd do a sort of small collection of, sort of four designs to launch as a way of you know sort of starting they're all sort of, sort of classically scottish designs you know we've got houndstooths a, a check uh, and we've named them after sort of scots who we find inspirational to us and our practice and our ambitions so run through the names we have we we've did a blog post on one uh our first design that we've launched which is the margot yes, fabric I named after margot mcdonald uh she's a force of nature and just like a real inspiration to i think anyone who doesn't know her needs to go on youtube and start watching videos like the way she handled herself especially you know in the 70s and stuff is just absolutely amazing a real loss not having her in scottish politics uh then the further to that we're going to be having a mclean design mm-hmm. so john mclean was a first world war hero there's sort of songs about him he campaigned against the first world war and it's sort of injustices mm-hmm. he was a teacher but he used to go down to the clyde side and campaign you know for workers rights and the sort of labor movement as it was starting uh, we think you know ethical production you know as makers you know fair pay for fair work all of that and then the last two we have one dresser uh, which is named after Christopher Dresser who was the first industrial designer uh, from Glasgow uh, studied here Uh, he sort of invented modern design a lot of people don't 
know this, but yeah, industrial design started here in Scotland. Right. Uh, so that's your all your teapots and everything, like thinking about things and that sort of, you know, an industrial design way. How can we manufacture this? How can we make this better? It started here. Gosh. And then the last one is White, uh, W-H-Y-T-E, named after Kathleen White, who was the head of embroidery and weave at the GSA for years, and she helped develop the Scottish school's curriculum for art and design. Oh, nice one. Just like really sort of four inspirational Scots who are, you know, from Glasgow and the surrounds who have been sort of influential, you know, in different ways, you know, from our practice, like me and Chantal. Basically, if you study design in the UK, you're studying the sort of principles that were set down by Christopher Dresser and Kathleen White, you know, if you did an art class in Scotland. She built that mm-hmm. curriculum. Uh, and then Margot and McLean, you know, two working class Scots who really just stood up for what they believed in and stood up for like the likes of me and you and yeah, just everyone of course. else. I love that attention to detail that you've put that amount of thought and energy into it. Like that just sums up what Viva is all about and, you know, the origins of it and everything that you've brought to the table and as well as, as Chantal, like, I, I love that. I think that's really, really special. At a heart, you know, Viva's about bringing opportunity back into the city. It's about demystifying things. It's about, you know, just celebrating Glasgow and what we are capable of, what we've done in the past and what we can do in the future. So sort of talking about those people, you know, people who are sort of historical and current but who have had such massive impacts just seem really important to us brilliant and it's been such an education for me i feel like i need to go and look up all these these important figures because as someone who's not in your world that just that's absolutely fascinating so so thank you for sharing all your your wisdom and your insight i'm, I'm delighted for you that you've been able to thrive even in this difficult time and it sounds like it's you know just the beginning of some really exciting things that are going to happen for viva yeah no as it's a it's a really it really is an exciting time. Uh, I think it's just an exciting time all around. I think a lot of people have started doing quite interesting things over the course of this. You know, mm. before we were speaking the other night when we were arranging this, uh, I said, oh, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think that's really sort of, it's came to it that we're all sort of finding new ways of doing things and new ways of working. Well, that's it. When the passion's there, do you know what I mean? Then it just, yeah. you have to, it's almost like you can't help yourself. Yeah, exactly. And you know, Viver being in Glasgow, you know, we're in we're in Brigton. If there's another lockdown, people can still walk to us and find out about weaving. Like I said, I need to travel to London or Paris quite a bit for work, whereas having this here it just makes it a little bit more local, a little yeah. bit more accessible. It's it's great for, for Glasgow. I'm delighted for you and I do wish you all the best and I'm excited for all the people that are going to you know, go through your doors and work with you and collaborate with you. I think it's, like we were saying, it's just very exciting times and I'm delighted that you've come on the Bra and the Brave at this point. We'll need to do it again in, like, I don't know, a year or two's time to see where, where things are at. Yeah, <laughs> live from the gutter. Here's Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's the name of my new my, my next podcast. <laughs> oh, hopefully not. <laughs> Love it. Now, I didn't tell you about this part, uh, Christopher, but I'm sure you are aware that I do a thing called the thingamabobs. Mm-hmm. They are just random questions that I do select for each guest, and I have selected a few for you today, if you will indulge me. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Okay, right. Well, going down the, the kind of Scottish route first, 
I want to know, do you have salt or sugar on your porridge? Oh, salt. I think putting sugar in would... I, I, you know, I, I actually quite remember my granda scolding me for that when I was little. Uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> but it's also like, again, living in London, it was great to... I, I, I worked in a, a bar down there and I used to walk past Pret on my way to my shift to have a bowl of porridge before I started. Uh, and I remember Miguel, the, the Portuguese bodybuilder I worked with, uh, he would be in a, a tray full of like eggs, rice and chicken and he'd see <laughs> me put salt in my porridge and be like, that's disgusting. I'm like, but I'm right. Well, it divides the nation. It does like... I've met so many people that are just like, can't believe that you would put salt anywhere near porridge. But then, yeah. I think those people haven't tried it. Make it with water, fill it with salt. See, this is like the technicalities because I would make it with, I would make it with milk. I mean, I, I guess that probably way back that, you know, sugar, uh, salt would have came first before folks started yeah. chucking in the sugar. But yeah, these before are the a, questions. A hard that... day of tilling the fields and weaving, you know. <laughs> this is it. This salty is it. porridge. Love it. Um, okay, here's one. What is your most treasured possession and why? You know, I'm actually looking at it here. I still have, it's ridiculous, it's on my bookcase in front of me. I still have my sort of very first teddy. Do you? It is a clown called George. I just I just love him. He's, he's all patched up. He's covered in where my mum's like stitched his hat Aww. back together. And you know, he doesn't have his original eyes and stuff. But these are the things like, like again, we we're talking about like nostalgia and things like we hoard and all that. But these are the things that you do treasure when you grow up. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's my oldest possession. He's always been there. He's not like I don't. It's not like I like clowns. It's the only clown related thing <laughs> I own. Please God, people don't start buying me clowns. <laughs> uh, it's just a wee thing I've always had and. It just reminds me of, yeah, just all the good things, all the all the Christmases and that, because it'd always be there. Oh, that's it. You are going to receive some clown stuff now, I feel it. <laughs> it's oh, like when I started my dance God. troupe, and it's called the Kennedy Cupcakes, and the amount of cupcake things that I've got. Cupcake paraphernalia. <laughs> well, see, the thing is, like, being a weaver, I think it's, it's taken up so much of people's perception of me that I get lots of, like, weaving presents. Right. I, it, was, it was my birthday the other month there, and my pal got me a shuttle like a big victorian uh, loom shuttle what's that uh, so the shuttle is the so when the warp goes up and down mm-hmm. it creates the shed you know like the parting in your hair it's a shed yes. uh, it's the parting of the the warp and the of the warp is your shed okay. and then you throw the shuttle across it and the shuttle goes back and forth like a shuttlecock or a shuttle bus yes. so it's that so it's a big lump of wood with two metal spikes on either end cool I love it. It's great. Again, it's, it's actually sitting next to George. That's why it's in my, in my, my eye line right now. But um, That's the kind of thing I would buy for my house, not knowing what it is, but just thinking that's cool. And I would just put it on my wall. And then... I mean, if you didn't know what it was, it'd be a, a murder weapon. <laughs> well, you can get away with it because you are an actual weaver. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I've got, I know what this is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I feel like I want to see a picture of George. You'll need to know send me a picture. I'll, I'll send you a picture. He's... He's, he's lovely, lovely done up because my mum always kept him. My house was a bit of a toy hospital, you know. My mum replaced eyes and sewed bits for every all my cousins. So, Aww, aye. I like that a toy hospital. Okay, here's one best advice ever given to you. Uh, you're a pain, but you're not a windy. <laughs> Just get out the road. You're not helping anybody. <laughs> that is amazing. 
I've never heard that before. It's my grandest favourite saying, but it's always stuck in my mind. Like, see, it's, it's like when you see people rush to help people get messages at a taxi and stuff, and they're just like, if I jump into this, I'm just not helping the situation. <laughs> if they need you, you'll ask you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm totally that person, though. I'm that annoying person that just wades in, and you're like, you've only asked, and probably quite often are just getting in the road. <laughs> Aye. So that, that's always stuck in my mind. Like, <laughs> You should have that on the, the wall in Weaver. <laughs> it's, it's, it's between that and uh, what's the other one? Oh, my granny always used to come out where uh, there's no pockets in a shroud. Which is every time I, you know, I'm deep into overdraft, I tell myself that. Yes, I like that one. You kind of take away you. Yeah. So when it comes to you know that that last pint or whatever, I'll, I'll yeah, need pockets and a shroud. I'll die tomorrow. My overdraft <laughs> dies with me. So good words of wisdom. I'm liking it. Your your grandparents were very insightful. Oh, they were great. They were they were a great pair. And. You'll probably know that the last question that I ask everybody in the podcast is, what is your favourite Scottish word or phrase? Clabber. <sighs> no one said that. I love clab. I love, like, see when I was little, playing in mud and just like, get out that clabber. <laughs> love it. I've not heard that Just got a good mouthfeel. Clabber. That's a good thing. No being out playing in the mud. Such a great word. Oh my goodness. No one has said that in the whole time that I've been doing the podcast. So you get that award, sir. It's, I think it says a lot about when I was away, you know, I used to like be digging in the garden for no reason other than to dig a hole. So like my favourite like sort of Scottish words are, you know, like mock it and clabber. Yeah. All you know, those dirty words. Bogging poofing. Aye. <laughs> clabber. Love it. Ah. Oh. Christopher, this has been a total joy. Thank you so much for coming on The Bra and the Brave. It's been great chatting to you and great podcast. So I've oh. been listening to it in the studio. Thank you so much. You've been listening to my dulcet tones and you still decided to come on and listen to me for a, over an hour. The looms are pretty noisy, so I mean it's on, but we're... <laughs> good. It's good to hear I've been drowned out by something useful. <laughs> oh, well, no, it's been great to be part of this and get to talk to yourself. So thank you. Thank you. And uh, please pass on my well wishes to Chantal. I'm, I'm delighted for you both in this, this new venture. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining the class. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Bra and the Brave, a podcast about people and their passions. Join us next time for more insight and inspiration from my wonderful guests. Bye for now.